Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with Globalizing the Rising, 1916 in Context, a major conference which will take place in University College Dublin on the 5th and 6th of February 2016. For more information, go to centenaries.ucd.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at the Universities in Revolution and State Formation Conference, which took place in UCD Newman House on the 5th and 6th of June 2015. This project was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and by a University College Dublin Decade of Centenaries Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording from Panel 3, Identity, Nation and the University. The paper, Students Between Two States, The Case of Trinity College Dublin, 1912-1945, was given by Dr. Tomás Irish from Trinity College Dublin. I want to thank the organisers, um, Connor, for having me here, especially as a representative of Trinity College Dublin. Speaking about Trinity College Dublin, which has a very conflicted maybe relationship with the, the um, revolutionary period in Ireland, um, this paper then focuses not on the involvement of students and graduates in revolution or state building, but the opposite. Um, I want to look at the consequences of revolution and the emergence of a new state for student identities. I want to focus on the peculiar case of Trinity College Dublin, a university which had been strongly unionist and had a close affinity to the United Kingdom before the foundation of the Free State. This paper will argue that at Trinity, the state formed a significant part of student identity. The establishment of the Irish Free State created an ambiguity in this relationship, causing a deep anxiety in student life and a sharp polarisation between different factions. This anxiety could be seen in public displays such as ceremonials and Armistice Day and sporting events, but was also on a more permanent display in student magazines, society activities and correspondence from the period um, between students. So the paper will concentrate mostly on the 1920s and the 1930s, a period which has been hitherto underexplored by historians of the university um, who have tended, just as a rule, to look at the aloofness of the Trinity hierarchy from the new regime, but not necessarily looking at what students were doing, um, how they were in, relating to one another and what they were talking about, which reveals slightly different dynamics. Um, but before I get to that, I want to begin with a vignette from 1912, um, the year of the Home Rule Crisis, when many of the debates which I'll touch on in, from the 20s and 30s were presaged. In that year, James Campbell, who is um, perhaps more familiar to us as Lord Glenavy, um, one of the university's MPs, the other being Sir Edward Carson, uh, well, Campbell moved an amendment to the Home Rule Bill of 1912 in to ensure that Trinity would be excluded from its provisions. Um, this was backed by John Redmond and was backed by the board of the college. In other words, Trinity would be effectively sort of partitioned from the new state as well as an, a, a yet-to-be-determined number of Ulster counties. An undergraduate protest emerged bearing the signatures of 184 students. The undergraduates acted as representatives of different political and religious backgrounds and in defence of Trinity's oft-invoked tradition of inclusiveness. And the document which they issued bore the names of Catholics and Protestants, Unionists and Nationalists drawn from across Ireland. The manifesto claimed that, quote, Trinity College is an Irish institution which has given prominent men to every Irish movement and it should not be used as a pawn in the political party game. Almost every Trinity man whatever his politics may be, will claim that Trinity is an Irish university and should stand and fall with the fortunes of the country, end quote. So this student movement, allied to a revolt amongst many of the teaching staff, the more junior teaching staff, 
led to the amendment being ultimately dropped. But the debate surrounding it was quite acrimonious and it re-emerged in the 1920s following the establishment of the Free State. And the big question effectively was, to paraphrase that quote I just used, um, would Trinity College Dublin stand and fall with Ireland's fortunes? Well, in the early 1920s, Trinity was a majority, to talk a little about the composition of the student um, body, it was a majority Anglican community still, as it had been for decades, around 60%, 70% Anglican, depending on what year you're looking at. The Roman Catholic population had been around 10-15%. Um, in the period, it rose to a high of around 25% in the mid-1920s. Um, but the institution remained firmly Protestant and a middle-class one at that, drawing students from many ex-unionist families across the island of Ireland. A small number of Trinity students and alumni had been involved in the War of Independence, but on the whole, the institution had been what I would call maybe a sceptical observer of, rather than an active participant in the Irish Revolution in which it had, after all, lost much of its political influence and, more pertinently, its financial assurance. For older members of the Trinity community in the 1920s and 1930s, change came slowly and with much difficulty, if at all. For example, in in terms of sort of um, very obvious outward markings of of change or lack thereof, the college still flew the Union Jack, along with the tricolour and the college flag from the Western Front, or Front Art as we call it, the King was still toasted at most co- official college functions, and God Save the King was played at most official events, including commencements or graduation ceremonies, until 1939. There's interesting historiography around this, I think, as well, um, which sort of focuses on the official activities of Trinity rather than students. Um, Terence Brown, for example, has written that, quote, um, in the 1920s, or sorry, the 1920s found Trinity financially insecure and intellectually and socially remote, for the most part, from contemporary Irish concerns. Um, FSL Lyons, himself a former provost of the college, argued that Trinity, as with ex-unionists elsewhere, retreated inwards out of feelings of intense self-consciousness and both said and did little. And he used the, ghetto, the metaphor of a ghetto to describe how the college was sort of isolated and besieged in the new state. Um, and this, this was true to an extent, but I think the, the, the degree of isolation has been perhaps overstated. You can see the college at an official level made some gestures towards the new state. I was reminded of this listening to the earlier paper about Owen McNeill. Um, they began giving honorary degrees to certain nationalist figures, which is an unusual, which they hadn't really done before the revolution in the 1920s. For example, in 1922, W.B. Yeats was given an honorary degree. In 1926, W.T. Cosgrave was given an honorary degree. And in 28, Owen McNeill was given an honorary degree as well. And significantly, given that he'd been ousted from the Royal Irish Academy in 1916, primarily by Trinity scholars, um, his coming back to receive an honorary degree in 1928 may be symbolic of something deeper. But the point I want to make is that the question of Trinity's relationship to Ireland and the repercussions of that for its wider identity were the subject of intense negotiation among students and by students in the 1920s and 1930s. So this ambiguous relationship of the university to the state became a preoccupation of the student body. The two decades following the end of the Civil War were notable as a period of great anxiety for students, staff and alumni of the college. Particularly interesting for students, um, just in general terms, student identities, if you read into the sort of sociology of how they're formed, well, we know they're formed through things like a multitude of different shared experiences, the results of living together, learning together, socialising together, what maybe makes the student body different from the, the administration is that it doesn't remain static over time. It changes. Obviously, successive waves graduate. 
different cadres come in year on year. But the student um, body retains certain elements of, the, of the, the sort of collective identity over time. And it's informed by a sort of deep consciousness of what had come before it. At Trinity, I think, central to student identities were the institution, its traditions, and its values. The institution's identity had been a political one, shaped over centuries of political privilege and close association with Britain. The removal of the political and cultural component of the institution's traditional identity meant that while the wider um, um, collective sense of community was in flux in the 1920s, and it posed the question, just what did it mean to be a Trinity student after 1922? Well, immediately following the signing of the treaty, the board of the college issued um, a resolution approving it. Um, The first editorial of the student newspaper reflecting on the the Anglo-Irish Treaty emerged in February 1922, and it opined that since Trinity was presented with a fait accompli through the signing of the treaty, the college should embrace the new political situation wholeheartedly. It said, quote, Trinity College has decided to throw in her lot unconditionally with the rest of Ireland, and we think the decision is wise but once taken, it must be pursued without reservation and without looking back. To use a colloquialism, we must be all in. And it added that this was the sentiment of nine-tenths of the student population. On the cessation of the Civil War, then, an editorial appeared in the student newspaper saying that, quote, the time has come for us to forget the past and live in the present. However, living in the present would prove difficult. And I want to sort of give some examples of how that manifested itself. Um, so, so certain um, representatives of the college tried their best or in different ways to sort of engage with the new state. Trinity was given four TDs initially in the, in the Dáil, subsequently revised down to three, and these went about engaging in different ways. One um, proposal emerged in 1922 through Ernest Alton, who was one of the TDs, and he told the Dáil that Trinity would begin playing Gaelic games. So they would start playing hurling, which they'd never done before, to sort of prove their engagement with the sort of wider cultural project. A letter to the student newspaper about this argued that, quote, we must of necessity accommodate ourselves to the new regime of our national life in which games play an important part. However, this proved a very um, controversial point of view. The letter was criticised by other students who claimed that there had, quote, hitherto been no demand for Gaelic games in college. Games such as rugby, cricket, rowing and athletics were very important parts of the rituals through which collective identity were formed, And attempts to integrate new sports into the college's life challenged traditional understandings of the institution's ethos and wider collective identity. To this claim of historical indifference to Gaelic games among students at Trinity, another correspondent to the student newspaper stated bluntly that, quote, Trinity still looks back to the past with longing, and like the ostrich, hides its head that it may not see what's going on around it. However, the game went ahead. Um, Hurling was introduced. It was a very high-profile game in 1923 with Dublin University playing UCD. Um, attended by the province of Trinity, the president of the GAA, remarked upon in all the national newspapers, um, UCD won 7-6-6-4. Um, there's a great video of it on the British Pathé collections online. Ceremonials um, brought these conflicted identities to the fore. And the big one, I think, is the remembrance of the First World War. This is where the point, um, her official com- ceremonial and collective identity converged. In the First World War, Trinity lost 471 students, staff, and alumni. So there's a very, very um, deep engagement with the war and a lot of sort of collective trauma at its end. Commemorative activities took place at two different levels. There were official Armistice Day ceremonials, such as the two-minute silence, which took place at 11 a.m. on the 11th of November, 
during which Trinity undergraduates would halt traffic in College Green in order to ensure that the ceremonial was fully observed. From 1919 to 1926, it became custom for crowds to assemble in College Green following church services. And College Green presented a natural gathering space in the centre of the city and com- could accommodate the huge crowds who gathered. But remembrance of the war, as we know, became quite contentious, as participants were often portrayed as disloyal to the new state. Undertones of violence emerged, and students were often instigating this, with Trinity and UCD students facing off, singing opposing anthems at one another, scuffling, and so on. These confrontations tapped into a deeper anxiety about group identities, which could be reasserted through symbolic group actions. The public face of remembrance became increasingly politicised and provocative, with God Save the King being sung, Union Jacks being waved, and on occasion, a captured German field gun being brought to front arch for militaristic effect by the undergraduates. And no one knows what this is, by the way. Um, it's in there somewhere, but no one will claim to know where the gun has gone. Um, and what, what I think is really interesting about this is that this, these very provocative public displays where students are going out into the streets, halting traffic, causing trouble, scuffling, are very reminiscent of student rags, which have been a very typical part of student life for decades and decades and decades before um, the Irish Revolution. For example, um, students used to sort of dress up as the board of college for a day, go out and stop traffic, commandeer shops, cause trouble, and this is called your know, rag, and it's part of sort of asserting what the college, what college life was about. In some ways, um, it invariably had a kind of a sinister edge to it as well. Just to give an example of it, there's a great headline from the Irish Times in 1914 about the last rag before the First World War, and the headline reads: "Students create excitement, ten arrests." <laughs> But there's a, I think there's a great continuity between the idea of the student rag and these armistice day um, scuffles and shows. But, on the other hand, these outward signs of political provocation undertaken on armistice day by certain undergraduates were offensive to many in Trinity who had either served in the war or who had lost loved ones in it. And the triumphalist attitude of some on armistice day became increasingly divisive. As early as November 1921, a correspondent in the student newspaper complained of the frivolous attitude of some of the younger undergraduates on Armistice Day. It was not to become, they hoped, just another event in the college calendar, like a rugger international or an inter-varsity match. That's a quote. Um, in 1926, following similar um, scuffles and scenes, a fellow of the college by the name of A.A. A. Luce, who had fought in the war, um, wrote to the student newspaper to try and halt the growing politicisation of Armistice Day. He urged poppy-wearing civilians not to join in the march of ex-servicemen, however well intended their actions, as it would cause provocation and serve to politicise the ceremonial. Concerns were raised again in 1929, this time regarding the behaviour of a few who, during the Armistice Day ceremonial, broke away from the main body of marchers and, quote, halted in the street, bawling, God save the king, waving their hats and cheering. The editorial in the student newspaper noted ruefully that, quote, for the thousands of outsiders in College Green, this pitiable exhibition represented the mind and policy of Trinity College. Equally worrying to the student newspaper was the wheeling out of the captured German field gun, and they commented on this a number of times. In 1930, a new student publication, which I'll talk about a little later, called The College Pen, reflected on the um, Remembrance Day service of the previous year, and it argued that the wider college community had, quote, forgotten that the day was arranged primarily to serve the interests of peace rather than war. It continued by stating that, in the, quote, in this country we are judged by appearances, and there's no doubt that by that standard we seem unduly ardent imperialists. 
So the question of what Trinity students should embody became increasingly fraught. By the late 1920s, a new generation of students, those with no direct experience of Trinity during the First World War in 1916, the War of Independence or Civil War, were still trying to chart a course for their university in the Free State. By that time, the new state was less of a novelty, and students increasingly sought to bring university life into line with wider currents. Some turned towards an exaggerated loyalism, while others sought to make their nationalist voices heard. In 1929, a new student organ called the College Pen, which I just referred to, was started in opposition to um, Trinity College um, TCD College Miscellany, which was the official student newspaper. But this new publication came about specifically because um, it wished to give greater voice to the marginalised within the college community, such as women and nationalists. And it wanted to tackle issues which it claimed the conservative um, student newspaper would not do. The official student newspaper was monitored by the board of the college, so it, it it's claims to ever express anything other than relatively anodyne opinions um, were it couldn't really be very provocative or radical in any sense. So this, the college pen was expressing more of the opinions which it felt were being denied through the official publication. And its first editorial stated that, quote, we trust that this college will not allow itself to be persuaded by one of the meanest scares in Irish history that it is anything other than an Irish university. An undergraduate in 1929 by the name of Peter O'Flaherty wrote a letter to the college pen in which he developed this idea and he sparked a very intense um, and colourful debate illustrating the great divergences amongst the student body when it came to Trinity's history and to its place in Ireland. He blamed what he called a certain minority in college who promulgated a, quote, narrow-minded intolerance and suspicion of all opinions which happened to differ from their own. For Trinity to truly contribute to national life, it needed to encourage, quote, the fullest freedom of thought and discussion among her members. An officer of the Historical Society, the the big debating society, traditionally quite conservative, by the name of J. Marshall Dudley, took issue with this idea, and he argued that Trinity owed its greatest allegiance um, to the empire, not to Ireland. He said, quote, She was not founded, nor did she ever pretend to be the university of an Irish Ireland. She was founded as an Anglo-Irish university. Owen Sheehy Skeffington, who entered Trinity in 1927, and would later represent the university in in the Shannad decades later, argued that loyalists wished to subordinate what he called the views of the majority to those of the minority. So in other words, he claimed that loyalists were in the minority rather than the majority. 1929 was a very significant year for Trinity for a number of reasons. It was the first occasion that Eamon de Valera, um, leader of the anti-treaty Fianna Fáil party, visited Trinity as a politician. We know he had had, um, studied for exams at Trinity in 1905 and 06. In November, he spoke to a very friendly audience at the College Gaelic Society, um, where he quoted from the Proclamation of 1916, and he stressed the importance of learning Irish. While he was addressing a society who shared many of his views, his presence in Trinity was notable and drew attention from those who saw him as a threat. A number of student protesters let off stink bombs during the event, earning the ire of, of the official student newspaper, demonstrating that many students did not welcome his presence. In the same year, a major controversy occurred um, that summer involving the college races, an annual athletic event. The Governor-General, Owen McNeill's brother James, was invited to attend. Um, At a similar event in 1928, his entrance had been heralded by the playing of God Save the King, as had been the custom for his predecessor as Governor-General. McNeill was anxious that this would not be repeated when he attended in 1929, but the student-led committee, as an act of compromise, in inverted commas, offered to play no anthem at all 
or God Save the King on his arrival. McNeill decided in turn not to attend the event, and this became a major source of embarrassment for the college. And bizarrely, in defending themselves in the newspapers, the college decided to blame the student-led and formed committee for this decision. So they wouldn't take... Um, they said, look, the students have decided we will not, we'll play um, God Save the King or No Anthem at all, but they blame the students. So by the late 1920s, then, the student body was increasingly polarised between ex, the ex-unionist majority and an emergent pro-treaty and nationalist minority. The latter group found it difficult to make its voice heard. The old Conservatives tended to dominate the editorial board of TCD, being the official student newspaper, and the committees of the big debating societies, such as the historical and the philosophical societies. But the value of expressing a non-traditional voice through one of these organs was very desirable um, to the minority and by the, um, by the late 1920s. For example, the historical society had been home to political luminaries such as Edmund Burke, Robert Emmett, Edward Carson, and it could be a vehicle for those with strong political opinions to express themselves and be sort of taken as a barometer of student opinion. So in 1930, then, it was a big deal when Owen Pope O'Mahony, a nationalist um, who, as his nickname Pope might suggest, wasn't typical of um, previous auditors of the historical society, but he was elected auditor in 1930. Um, he had been the man who invited de Valera to the Gaelic Society in 1929, and he's also founder of the College Pen. At the opening meeting, uh, his first meeting in charge of the historical society, he infuriated a number of former unionists who were present by proposing a toast to Ireland rather than through to the British monarch. A number of attempts were made to impeach him, but he clung on to his position for the year amidst much bitterness. And it's very interesting to read about how sort of divisive his appointment and his term was. De Valera's speech to the Gaelic Society in 1929 is very moderate. Like I said, he was speaking to a friendly audience. He came again in 1934. This time, um, he was the president of the Executive Council of the Free State in March 1934, invited by the League of Nations Society to attend a lecture given by Robert Cecil, one of the big architects of the League of Nations. He came again eight months later um, to address the Historical Society, and this is much more significant. On this occasion, he was invited by the Society's auditor, um, by the name of, a student by the name of James Wellwood. In his invitation, Wellwood expressed his hope that de Valera's attendance would serve as a token of his, quote, goodwill towards Trinity College. And it was significant that on each occasion de Valera spoke at Trinity, it was at the initiation of students, not of the college hierarchy. Years later, Arthur Aston Luce, who I mentioned earlier, who was a fellow of the college until 1977, he recalled that, quote, when de Valera came to power, we were all frightened of him. So in a sense, it required the students to invite him rather than um, the college's teaching or administrative staff. Wellwood, in his letter, asked de Valera to give his thoughts on, quote, the relation that ought to exist between the university and the nation, between Trinity and Ireland. And de Valera obliged, giving a very strident speech, which criticised the reluctance of members of the Trinity community to fully embrace the Irish state. He said, quote, the greatest thing that this college can do for the nation would be to get its young men to turn their minds and their hearts in the direction of their own people. And this was a very important moment, I think, um, and it was described as such by people present. William Crook, who was a former um, home rule politician, was present. He was a, a graduate of Trinity. Um, he described the event as historic. He recalled seeing the Provost of Trinity and Eamon de Valera on the same platform. And he paraphrased Galileo, saying, Epur si muove, in other words, and yet it moves. So he had this big old archaic institution still capable of being a little bit radical and changing. And this student-led action was important. In 1937, de Valera returns to Trinity again, this time invited by the provost of the college to open the new reading room. 
which completed the college's war memorial um, in Front Square. De Valera's speech on this occasion was notably much softer, eschewing difficult topics such as the First World War and Trinity's relationship to the Irish state, sticking to an easy theme of Thomas Davis, Trinity nationalists, and so on. So to conclude then, the two decades following the establishment of the Free State were marked by a deep anxiety in the Trinity student community over their relationship to the state and by extension what, uh, how to constitute their wider group identity. This was fought out in publications, in societies, and most obviously in provocative public displays. I think the most provocative of it all and the most well-known of all came on the 7th of May 1945 when crowds gathered in College Green to, to celebrate Victory in Europe Day. Large numbers of TCD students and alumni had fought in the conflict, in which Ireland is, of course, neutral, and at least 113 of them died. During the course of the afternoon, we know that a group from Altirina Hashairiga, a far-right group with fascist sympathies, burned Union Jack, possibly aided by a UCD student and future Taoiseach called Charles Hahi. A handful of students on the roof of Trinity attempted to burn an Irish tricolour, either acting in response to the burning of the Union Jack or being the provocation for it. The sources are conflicting on this. But these reciprocal gestures prompted two days of riots, with the college assailed by projectiles. The provost, um, a man by the name of Ernest Alton, I mentioned earlier, met with Taoiseach de Valera to apologise in person and found the Taoiseach to be, quote, courteous and understanding, agreeing with him that an insult was offered to the tricolour. Oddly, this event hastened the process by which Trinity found an accommodation with the new state. By 1947, de Valera had agreed for the first time to give the college state funding, um, which is a very, very important moment where the college at an official level is being brought into the mechanisms of the Irish state. At the level of sort of student identities and student relationships to it, um, I don't want to take it much further in this period, but the postscript, um, from my point of view, and I know Roy might have um, something else to add to this after as well, um, Obviously, regards the, the Catholic ban, McQuaid's ban, which came in in 1944, the ban on Catholics from his archdiocese, the Archdiocese of Dublin, attending Trinity, which was extended to all Irish dioceses in 1956. So, in a sense, it was not until the 1970s, following the lifting of the ban, the Trinity became truly representative of the religious composition of the wider country, and in so doing, began to overcome this crisis of identity, which is so pronounced in the 1920s and 1930s. So, the larger point that I really want to make through that is that revolution and state formation in their way also impacted um, the other way around, on collective identities, on student, very specific student identities. Um, so at Trinity, it was a real period of flux and anxiety, and it became quite bitter in certain instances. Um, but the other point I'd like to make is that it was students, in many respects, who were pushing the agenda, hastening, inadvertently or otherwise, our rapprochement between the university and the state. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. You can find many more podcasts at historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.